Section 64 of Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1. Section 64. Social and Economic Conditions of the Roman Empire in the 4th Century by Paul Vinogradov. Part 1. The ancients saw in the stupendous destiny of the Roman state the clue to the history of the universe and revelation of the plans of providence in regard to the world. Italy, wrote Pliny the Elder in the time of Vespasian, has been selected by deity in order to collect dispersed power, to soften customs, and to unite by the communion of one language the various and barbarous dialects of so many nations to bestow on men the intercourse of ideas and humanity, in a word, that all races of the world should have one fatherland. Historia Naturalis, Volume 3, Chapter 6 For Christians, the conquest of the world by Rome had even a deeper meaning. Quote, Jesus was born in the reign of Augustus, who, as it were, associated in one monarchy the immense multitude of men dispersed about the earth, because a plurality of kingdoms would have been an obstacle to the diffusion of Christ's doctrine through the whole world. End quote. Origin, Contra Celsum, Volume 2, Chapter 30 But Augustus was a heathen, and his successors persecuted Christianity so that the Roman Empire served the gospel for a long time unconsciously and in spite of its desires. This conception of universal history made a further stride when Constantine the Great proclaimed Christianity the religion of the state. In ancient times, says Eusebius of Caesarea, the world was divided according to countries and nations into a multitude of commonwealths, tyrannies, principalities, Hence, constant wars and the devastations and depredations following thereupon. The origin of these divisions may certainly be ascribed to the diversity of the gods worshipped by men. But when the instrument of salvation, the most holy body of Christ, was raised against the demons, forthwith the cause of demons has vanished, and states, principalities, tyrannies, commonwealths have passed away. One God has been announced to the whole of mankind, one empire obtains sway over all men, the Roman Empire. Eusebius, Panegyric of Constantine, Chapter 16 But the unification of the inhabited world, oikomene, which forms the meaning and the greatness of the Roman Empire, is a process presenting two different sides to the observer. Celts, Iberians, Raetians, Moors, Illyrians, Thracians were to some extent civilized by the culture of Greece and Rome, and achieved by its help a great advance in economic and civil organization as well as in education. Syrians, Egyptians, and the inhabitants of Asia Minor only modified to a certain extent their manners and views in order to meet the requirements of the empire. But if the intermixture of tribes and their permeation by Greco-Roman culture was in one sense a great progress, it was at the same time, but from another point of view, a decline. It was accompanied by a lowering of the level of the culture which exerted the civilizing influence.
While conquering barbarism and native peculiarities, Greco-Roman culture assumed various traits from its vanquished opponents, and became gross and vulgar in its turn. In the words of a biographer of Alexander Severus, good and bad were promiscuously thrust into the empire, noble and base, and numbers of barbarians. Historia Augusta Alexandri Severi, 64 the unification and transformation of tribes standing on low grades of civilization leads to consequences characterized by one common feature, the simplification of aims, degeneration. This process is concealed for a while by the political and economic advantages following on the establishment of the empire. The creation of a central authority upholding peace and intercourse, Pax Romana, the conjunction of the different parts of the world into one economic system enlivened by free trade, the spread of citizenship and civil culture in wider and wider circles of population. All these benefits produced for a while a rise in prosperity which counterbalanced the excess of barbarous, imperfectly assimilated elements. But a series of political misfortunes set in rather rapidly in the 3rd century. Invasions of barbarians, conflicts between rival candidates to the throne, competition between armies and provinces, put an end to order and prosperity, and threatened the very existence of the empire. In these calamities, the barbarization of Roman culture became more and more manifest, a backward movement began in all directions. A backward movement, however, which was by no means a mere falling back into previous conditions, but gave rise to new and interesting departures. It suffices to glance at the names of the Roman citizens of the Empire in order to notice that we are in very mixed company. Instead of the nomina and cognomina of earlier days, we find strange barbaric appellations hardly whitewashed by the adjunction of us or er at the end. A T. Tamonius Saini Tamoni Filius Vitalis and a Blescius Diovicus do not look very pure quirites. Such barbarians had first of all to learn Latin as the common tongue of the Western Empire, and they did learn to use Latin. But what Latin? As St. Jerome has it, Latin language gets transformed according to countries and to epochs. Common speech, the lingua vulgaris, whether former Celt, Iberian, or Ration, became gradually a new Romance language, the sounds and forms of which were deflected from the original Latin in consequence of the physiological and intellectual peculiarities of Celts, Iberians, Rations. We may be allowed to give a few instances of this curious process of transformation from the well-known history of French phonetics and grammar. The Latin U was kept up in Italian, but softened into the French U, e.g. durus, duro, dur, and we cannot wonder at that, because the population of Gaul, when yet speaking Celtic, sounded U as U, and not somewhat like the English U in poor. The French liaison 
the habit of sounding the otherwise mute consonant at the end of a word before a vowel in order to avoid a hiatus may be traced to the celtic habit of joining separate words into compounds in celtic dialects the accent makes one or the other syllable so prominent that the other syllables become indistinct and may get slurred over this stress put on the accentuated syllable has called forth in French a characteristic deterioration of unaccentuated parts of words. Sometimes whole groups of sounds disappear, as in ut, Augustus. Sometimes they are represented only by a mute e, as in vi, vita. The French habit of marking the last syllable by an accent, even in the pronunciation of Latin, goes back ultimately to this trait. In reading the Latin text of the Salic law, we are struck by the complete dislocation of this system of declensions. The ablative case is constantly used instead of the accusative, the accusative instead of the nominative, etc. But this degeneration was prepared by the practice of vulgar Latin even in the first and second centuries when the genitive case disappeared. The dative followed suit somewhat later. It is not, however, to be supposed that Latin was imposed even in its vulgarized forms on the entire population of the empire. It is needless to remind the reader of the fact that in the whole eastern half Greek was the language of the educated classes. But both in the east and in the west there were many backward regions in which vernacular speech held its own stubbornly against Greek and Latin. The Copts, Arabs, Syrians, Armenians never gave up their native languages, and the Oriental undercurrents continued to play an important part in the social life of Asia and Egypt. There are many vestiges of a similar persistency of barbarian custom and speech in the West. Roman law admitted expressly that valid deeds could be executed in Punic, and judging from the story about a sister of Septimius Severus, Punic must have been very prevalent among well-to-do families of knightly rank in Africa. When the lady in question came to visit her brother in Rome, the emperor had often to blush on account of her imperfect knowledge of Latin. The letters and sermons of St. Augustine show that this state of things had by no means disappeared in Romanized Africa in the 5th century. The great African bishop repeatedly urged the necessity for dignitaries of the church to be acquainted with Punic, and he had recourse himself to illustrations drawn from this language. In Spain and Gascony, one living remnant of pre-Roman civilization has survived to our days in the Escaldunac speech of the Basques, the offspring of the Iberian race. While Brittany exhibits another block of pre-Roman custom in the speech and manners of its Breton population. St. Jerome testifies to the fact that in the neighborhood of Treves, one of the mightiest centers of Roman civilization, a Celtic dialect was spoken by the peasants in the 4th century, so that a person reared there possessed a clue to the speech of the Galatians, the Celtic tribe of Asia Minor. In the Latinized northwest of the Balkan Peninsula, the vernacular Illyrian was never driven out or destroyed, 
and the present speech of the Albanians is directly derived from it, in spite of a sprinkling of Latin words and expressions. In the west of England, Celtic speech and custom runs on uninterruptedly through the ages of Roman, Saxon, and Norman conquest, not to speak of Welsh, which has borrowed many Latin words, especially technical terms, but remains a purely Celtic language, Cornish was spoken in Cornwall up to the 18th century, while in Cumberland and Westmoreland the custom of shepherds to count their sheep in Celtic numerals was the last vestige of a separate existence of a Welsh population. These traces of stubborn national life forming a kind of barbarian subsoil to Roman culture, are important in many ways. They help us not only to understand the history of dialects and of folklore, but they account for a good many spontaneous outbursts of barbarism in the seemingly pacified and Romanized provinces of the empire at a time when the iron hand of the rulers began to relax its grip over the conquered populations. Berber, Punic, Iberian, Illyrian, and Celtic tribes come forward again in the calamitous years of the 4th and 5th centuries. Usurpers, riotous soldiers, and brigands gather strength from national aspirations, and in the end the disruption of the empire becomes inevitable on account of internal strife as well as of foreign invasions. Nowhere, perhaps, has this subliminal life of the province to account for so much as in England, where the arts and crafts of Rome were introduced in the course of three centuries and a half of gradual occupation, and Latin itself was widely spoken by the upper classes, but where, nevertheless, the entire fabric of Roman rule crumbled down so rapidly during the fifth century, and Celts were left to fight with the Teutons for the remnants of what had been one of the fair provinces of Rome. A transformation similar to that expressed in language is clearly perceivable in the history of art. Christianity introduced into the world a powerful new factor, the strength of which may be gauged in the paintings of the catacombs and in the rise of new styles of architecture, the Byzantine and the Romanesque. Thus we have to deal not with mere deterioration and decay, but also with the lowering of the level of culture and the barbarization of art, which make themselves felt in various ways. When Rome had to raise a triumphal arch to the conqueror of Maxentius, a great part of the reliefs for its adornment were carried over from the arch of Trajan, while some sculptures were added by contemporary artists. And the latter perpetuate the decay of art and of aesthetic taste, the figures are distorted, the faces deformed, and the so-called discus of Theodosius, the symbolical figures of the lower part were copied from ancient originals and are handsome. Their upper half was filled with representations of living people, and it is evident that the gross, flat, ugly faces with heavy embroidered uniforms were reproduced with fidelity, while the handling of the figures strikes the observer by its clumsiness and faulty designs. The chief thing in the pictorial and plastic arts of the 3rd and 4th centuries is not beauty or expression, but size and costly material. Gallienus, whose unfortunate reign was nicknamed the period of the Thirty Tyrants, 
ordered a statue of himself two hundred feet in height. It was planned on such a scale that the child was able to ascend by a winding staircase to the top of the emperor's lance. Instead of marble, precious porphyry, a stone exceedingly difficult to cut, was used for plastic purposes. The contractor and polisher were more important persons than the sculptor for the purpose of making statues of this material. It is of special importance for us to notice the gradual degeneration, or rather transformation, of economic life. Towards the beginning of our era, a great circuit of industrial and commercial intercourse is formed under the protection of the empire. It reminds us in some ways of the world market of the present time. The different provinces exchanged goods and developed specialties fitting into one whole through mutual support. The excellent roads made quick exchanges possible. Considerable capital sought employment in productive enterprises. Firm political power and mutual confidence fostered the growth of credit. From the third century onwards the picture changes. The subjection of conquered peoples by Roman citizens ceases, and the greater part of the population of the empire is admitted to the rights of citizenship. This meant that masses of people, over whom governors, publicans and contractors had exercised almost uncontrolled sway, were enabled to come forward with their interests and legal claims. Provincial forces began to assert themselves, and in husbandry local needs and the requirements of small people made themselves more and more felt. As a consequence, the wide organization of world intercourse keeps way before more direct and modest economic problems. Each social group has to look out primarily for itself in regard to food, clothing, housing, furniture. On the other hand, the supply of slaves gets more and more hampered by the fact that wars of conquest cease. In the beginning of the third century we hear already of a price of 200 aurei, or 500 denarii, a full ancient coinage for a slave. Digest, Volume 4, Chapter 4, Section 51. A very high price indeed, which shows indirectly how difficult it was to get slaves. During the protracted defensive wars, which had to be fought on all the frontiers, prisoners were frequently made, but these Germans, Slavs, Huns, were difficult to manage, and made clumsy laborers when settled for agricultural purposes. It was more profitable to leave them a certain independence on their plots, and therefore to cut up large estates into small holdings. Lastly, the rise of provincial and local interests, and the change in the condition of the laboring classes, coincided with the terrible political calamities which I have already had occasion to mention. The dislocation of the commonwealth rendered all widely extended economic plans insecure and contributed by itself to the tendency of each separate locality to live its own life and to work for its own needs without much help from the outside. As a result of the working of these different causes, society falls back from a complicated system of commercial intercourse to the simpler forms of natural economy. This movement is not arrested by the restoration of the empire in the 4th century, but rather strengthened by it. Political power is indeed restored, but it has to be maintained by straining every nerve in social life, and this straining 
hampers free movement and free contract, fastens everyone to a certain place and to a certain calling. In an exposition of the whole world and of nations, translated from Greek in the time of Constantius, soon after 345, much attention is still paid to the economic intercourse between the different parts of the empire. Greece itself is said to be unable to satisfy its own needs. But in regard to many of the other provinces, it is expressly noted that they are sufficient unto themselves. Besides, most of them produce goods which are exported to other places. Escalon and Gaza, for example, are said to provide excellent wine for Syria and Egypt. Scythopolis, Laodicea in Syria, Byblus, Tyre, Berytus send out linen wares all around the world, while Caesarea, Tyre, Sarepta, and Neapolis are famous in the same way for their purple-dyed tissues. Egypt supplies Constantinople and the eastern provinces with corn and has a monopoly in the production of papyrus. From Cappadocia, furs are obtained, from Galatia, different kinds of clothing. Laodicea in Phrygia has given a name to garments of a special kind. Asia and the Hellespont produce corn, wine, and oil. In Macedonia and Dalmatia, iron and lead mines are noted. In Dardana, Illyria, pastoral pursuits are prevalent, and bacon and cheese are sent to market, while Epirus is distinguished by its large fishing trade. The western provinces are not described in such a minute way, but fine Italian wines are mentioned, the trade of Arles for imports into Gaul is noted, and Spain is extolled on account of its oil, cloth, bacon, and mules. Oil is also said to be largely supplied by the African province, while clothing and cattle come from Numidia. Pannonia and Mauritania are the only provinces mentioned as carrying on the slave trade. Some forty-five years before this commercial geography of the empire was drawn up, another curious document shows the imperial authorities engaged in a wearisome struggle in order to protect easy intercourse and to ward off the rise of prices. I mean the famous edict of Diocletian and of his companion emperors, establishing maximum prices in the empire. Such measures are not taken without cogent reasons and indeed we are told that prices had risen enormously. Although it is hardly probable that the reason of the dearth had to be sought in the iniquities of the rulers. Lactantius de Mortibus Persecutorum, Chapter 7 The enactment itself dilates on the evil greed of avaricious producers and vendors, and declares in the name of the fathers of humankind that justice has to arbitrate and to intervene. The emperors are especially incensed at the hard bargains which are extorted from soldiers quartered in the provinces or moving along the roads. Prices are screwed up on such occasions not to four or eight times the ordinary value, but to an extent that could not be expressed in words. If such things happen in times of abundance, what is to be expected from seasons when actual want is experienced? Without attempting to fix normal prices, the emperors threaten with capital punishment merchants engaged in supplying the different provinces with wares. Lactantius reports that blood flowed 
and that the impossibility of enforcing cheapness by the hands of executioners was only recognized after fruitless attempts to terrorize tradesmen into submission. Let us look, however, at some of the details of the edict, fragments of which have been preserved in several copies in the Balkan Peninsula, Asia Minor, and Egypt, viz. in the provinces under the direct sway of Diocletian. Traces of commercial intercourse of the same kind as that described in the Expositio frequently meet the eye. We hear again of the high-class wines of Italy, of line investments from Laodicea, Scythopolis, Byblus, of purple-dyed garments manufactured on the Syrian coast and fetching very high prices, and of somewhat less expensive kinds from Miletus. A piece of purple linen for ornamental stripes, clavi, weighing six ounces, may be sold for thirteen thousand, twenty-three thousand, and even thirty-two thousand denarii, fifty thousand of the latter corresponding to one pound of gold. Cloth garments came from Laodicea in Phrygia, from Modena in Italy, and in the shape of coarse warm mantles from Flanders. In a word, the lines of commercial intercourse are clearly traced, but the difficulties encountered by trade under new conditions are also very visible. Some comparisons with extant valuations of goods ordered for soldiers enable us to form a judgment as to the fluctuations of prices which Diocletian's enactment tried to moderate. We hear, e.g., that in one case 80 pounds of bacon were estimated at one solidus, 6,000 copper denarii, and in another instance 20 pounds at 1,000 denarii. According to the tariff of Diocletian, the maximum price for bacon of the best kind would have been, in the first instance, 96,000, and in the second, 16,000 copper denarii, the latter being almost 16 times more than the ordinary price. It is important to notice that while the ordinary agricultural laborer is not allowed to receive higher wages than 25 silver denarii, about 120 copper denarii per day besides board, the maximum price of a double sextarius, roughly about a quart of wheat, was fixed at 100 silver denarii, and that of a pound of pork at 12 silver denarii. One cannot wonder at the failure of Diocletian's attempt, which according to contemporary testimony only increased the evils it was meant to suppress, the penalties against the merchants leading to concealment of goods and interruptions of trade. But it is characteristic of the methods of compulsory legislation constantly employed by the emperors of the 4th century that Julian made a similar and quite as unsuccessful attempt to coerce the citizens of Antioch into fair trade. It is impossible to suppose that such measures were dictated by a kind of Caesar madness, prompting the rulers of the civilized world to affirm their will and wisdom as against economic laws. However faulty in its conception, the policy indicated by the edicts of Diocletian and Julian had its roots in a well-meaning though ineffectual desire to regulate trade and to protect fair intercourse. It may be likened, as most attempts to impose maximum limits to prices, to the police supervision of trade in necessaries of life 
practiced in besieged cities. The emperors and their bureaucracy had come to look on the whole civilized world subject to their authority as upon a besieged city, in which all civil professions had to conform to military rule. End of section 64